our first stakeholders are really the scientists. And we need to turn all this kind of invisible knowledge and all these kind of structures they're working on into really meaningful images that allow us to communicate better about climate change scenarios. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. And usually I do this podcast together with Enrico Bertini, who is a professor at NYU in New York. But right now he's unavailable, so I'm all on my own. But you'll see, I'll, I'll have a guest later on, so I'm not all alone. Um, generally on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, data analysis, and the role data plays in our lives. And our podcast is listener-supported, um, so there are no ads. If you do enjoy the show, please consider supporting us. You can do that with recurring payments on patreon.com slash datastories or send us a one-time donation on paypal.me slash datastories. You will find these links also in the show notes. And a little quick announcement before we start. So this episode will be talking a lot about the relation of design and science. And if this is a topic you would like to learn more about or that you're interested in, I have some good news because I will be teaching a one-day training course on data visualization for scientists. So this might be a good fit. Um, and it will take place in Utrecht in the Netherlands in August, August 21, 2018. And um, I know it's a bit tight. Maybe when we publish the episode, you'll only have a few weeks to decide, but I can really recommend taking part. It will be organized by Graphic Hunters. They have a great training program around data visualization in general. Um, we will, of course, put the link again in the show notes. And just as a note, I often do workshops inside large organizations, also in research. But I do these public ones where everybody can take part, actually quite rarely. So... If you are interested, make sure to grab a ticket just in case. Anyways, enough self-promotion. <laughs> Let's get started with the actual topic. The topic for today is one that's very close to my heart and I'm really happy that we finally get to talk about it. It's about visualizing future climate scenarios. And I have an expert here with me, Professor Boris Müller. Hi, Boris. Hi, Moritz. Boris, can you briefly introduce yourself for the listeners who might not know you? Okay, sure. I'm Boris Müller, Professor for Interface and Interaction Design at the University of Applied Sciences here in Potsdam. And I also run an interesting small research lab together with my colleague, Professor Marianne Dirk. The lab is called Urban Complexity Lab. And uh, while we look at a lot of urban data and uh, urban data visualizations, we also kind of spread out into different areas. And one of them is collaboration with scientists and now specifically um, visualization of climate change and climate scenarios. Right. And this is a great opportunity to have you on. We wanted to have you on for a long time because we should also mention Boris and I have been longtime uh, <laughs> friends and acquaintances because he has been a longtime mentor of mine and was in fact the supervisor of my master's thesis uh, by now over 10 years ago. Oh, God. And, <laughs> yeah. 10 years ago. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. So we go back a uh, long time and I'm, so I'm especially happy to have you on now. Uh, and Marian Dirk, we also had on the show um, 
also a couple of years ago, ago to talk about yeah. his notion of information flaneurism, which was a great episode as well. So you might want to check that one out too. So yeah, with Boris, we could talk a about a lot of things, data visualization in general, interaction design, interface design. But what today we're mostly curious about is the census project, which deals with visualizing future climate scenarios. So Boris, can you tell us a bit about the census project? What's the overall goal? Who's involved? And, and what is your team's role? Mm -hmm. um, the, the census project is, um, well, it's a fairly large European research project that started last year. Um, the partners involved are the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, the International Institute for Applied System Analysis in Vienna, um, the Stockholm Environment Institute, and the Wageningen University in the Netherlands. So it's a really high-profile, really interesting consortium and really good bunch of people. Um, the overall aim of the census project is to make climate change scenarios more accessible, understandable, and actionable. Um, and it's important to point out the project is not directly about visualizing climate change, but about vi visualizing climate change scenarios. And uh, now probably everyone is wondering kind of what are climate change scenarios. Um, and this is actually a fairly complex subject matter. <laughs> and I can already say that about half of our time, of our design time, goes into explaining what climate change scenarios are. Um, and the other half of our design work goes into explaining what you can do with them. Yeah, okay. So that's quite a common situation for designers that a lot of the time goes into actually finding the right uh, question and formulation for the problem before you can even start coming up with solutions, right? So maybe um, paddling back a bit. So I mean, we've all seen a lot of visualizations indicating climate change, like the temperature anomalies, the hockey stick curve, the Arctic ice extent. There's a lot of creativity also going on in, in reinterpreting these, these data sets showing climate change in, mm -hmm. in different ways, because many people think it's, this is the, the main problem to solve first is like to create awareness that climate change is real, right? So, but how does now visualizing climate scenarios relate to these images of climate change that we're all familiar with by now. Yeah. Um, surprisingly enough, the the relationship with these, let's say, kind of classic climate change um, visualizations is actually not that big. Um, and it also took me a while to really understand the, all the intricacies and, and all the details on the scientific side. Um, and essentially, um, climate change scenarios are a way to talk about the future. And um, it's actually, actually, and so this is also really interesting for me to learn that you know the climate part is actually fairly small in the in the in the overall scenario bit, oh. um, because we have to understand that. Well, or, or I go back one step. It's important to point out that climate change scenarios are plausible, consistent repre uh, representations of possible futures. So. They're, they're not just kind of extensions of today, but um, the scientists use socioeconomic models to really model our current society, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and these scenarios produce then um, lots of data for key indicators like GDP, emissions, energy use, land use, and so on and so on and so on for the next hundred years. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. So it's really it's very much about really understanding our society and understanding how how economies work, and uh, and then understanding the impact 
that the economy has on the climate and modeling all that and, you know, putting, you know, different input data in and getting different input data out. But yeah. it's really all about the future. And there are very, very consistent, very, very large models. So PIC, for example, is one of the largest uh, supercomputers in Germany, and they use it to calculate these climate scenarios. Mm -hmm. So the idea is really to understand how the whole world will develop given different amounts of climate change or different like extremities of, of climate change? Could you say that? I always like to say that that climate scenarios are big what-if machines. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a way, the, the, they describe possible futures um, depending on how we will behave in, well, now, in the next five years or in the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, so, It's very important. Climate scenarios are not used to convince someone that global warming is is or is not well is happening. You know, we know that global warming is happening, and so it's more about describing possible futures where global warming will have a big effect on our everyday lives. Um, and uh, so, to point out, I mean, global warming will happen, and the only thing we can do in the future is either to mitigate the effects of climate change or to adapt to this completely new world. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the climate change scenarios are tools that allow us to map out and describe different futures. Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds like quite a task. <laughs> so I think <laughs> there's a lot of complexity to unpack when it comes to these climate scenarios, right? And so what's your role as designers then? And what's your strategy to even like to even do something meaningful in that space without being overwhelmed. Yeah. The fun thing is we started this project, the census project, and we, we, we said we we're going to collaborate very closely with a number of stakeholders from finance, from business, from policy, but also local NGOs. So we're really trying to collaborate with decision makers because they need to understand Uh, the value of uh, climate change scenarios so they mm -hmm. can make be better decisions. Um, but we realized fairly on in the, in the in the process that our first stakeholders are really the scientists. Um, and we need to turn all this kind of invisible knowledge and all these kind of structures they're working on into really meaningful images that allow us to communicate better about, about climate change scenarios. So in the beginning, we're working right now on, on a climate scenario primer Mm -hmm. uh, where we try to explain, with the help of visualization, how climate scenarios work, why they're relevant, and what you can really get out of them. Right, right. So, uh, and I guess that also helps for you to just unpack the complexity and get started into the topic. Is like trying to, yeah, if you try to teach somebody the basics of something, you also have a chance maybe to get a grasp of them, right? First. No, honestly, it's, it's a bit of a thesis project, and we're always yeah. going to the scientists and show them what, what we've done. And they're either, yeah. and it's also really interesting. Sometimes, you know, you work really a long time on something that's where you think it's really spectacular, you know, <laughs> and the, client, the scientists go, yeah, interesting, thank you. And then there's another thing you, we hack together in one afternoon, you know something very very simple that we thought everyone could do it and they mm -hmm. loved it you know? uh -huh. and wow. it really helped them and and i think this is one thing we really also had to understand we um it's really possible as designers to help the scientists do their own work um because they sometimes have these huge databases or really complex relationships or the whole the way that their 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 mathematical models are structured they are so opaque in a way that it's mm. sometimes also really difficult for them to talk about it mm -hmm. and um when we for example when we take very very simple metadata visualization you know it immediately created an image that allowed them to really understand what was happening inside the algorithm and it really helped them to 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 have a conversation in in larger teams and i thought it was really really interesting uh, to, to, to help them do their work better. Mm -hmm. 
So you're basically just asking, let's say, simple questions and some of them do have a simple answer and, and you're just spot on and you can move on. And sometimes these simple questions actually point to like big gaps of, of where actually better communication is, is actually needed, even inside yeah. the scientific community. Well, I think the, the um, um, to come back to maybe to your first question, um, I think our role is, first, right now we're, I think, mainly communicators and, um, and uh, we try to create visualizations that um, on the one hand side help us to understand the, the models and the structure of the scenarios mm -hmm. better because I think it's also really important that the stakeholders really know what, what the scientists are doing and what we are doing. Um, so Because otherwise it's just, you know, long rows of numbers or you just have line graphs for example we've all seen the ipcc line graphs you know how the co2 emissions will change over the next hundred years and what we have to do to reach the the, the paris um, agreement um, but this is a very very limited way of communicating and mm -hmm. um And as a, in the public, you just have to tr kind of trust these numbers or as, even as an expert. And what we're trying to do is we really want to kind of open the black box a little bit and allow the, 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 the stakeholders to really understand how the scientists came up with these numbers and why they are believable, why they are meaningful and why they really are a great tool for, for exploring possible futures. So it's more kind of an internal um, uh, tool for enlightenment, I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we try to take the, the, the data that was generated by the scenarios and visualize that in order to really have more like maps of possible futures that again helps the stakeholders to map out the scenario space, map out possible futures and really support them in a decision making process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's, I think, very interesting. That keeps coming up also when we talk about machine learning, that the one thing is like making the output usable and making the yeah. output user-friendly or understandable, but also making the workings of these black boxes uh, transparent. And and obviously, visualiza uh, data visualization can play a big role in, in both uh, uh, areas. And yeah. maybe it needs to go together, like... Uh, that you can only make good use of the output of something if you at least have a rough idea how the inner workings uh, are, especially when it no, comes absolutely. to models. Mm. Absolutely, I totally agree. I think the whole <clears throat> notion of not only visualizing data, but, but um, visualizing systems and models is, I think... Very, very important also in the, in the in the near future because we're dealing with such complex systems that really have a huge influence on our daily lives um, that are, yeah, as you just said, that are just black boxes. And yeah. uh, I think visualization can play a major role in really helping also the public to understand what's going on in these boxes. Mm -hmm. Are there concerns from the scientists that you're oversimplifying if you like break down a complex system that people have spent millions of euros for years working on and you, you just draw five boxes and arrows? Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, but actually, it's 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 much better than I uh, than I, I feared at the beginning. Okay. I, I, I was yeah. really a bit scared of the project, to be honest, <laughs> because it's a very very complex subject matter. I thought, oh my god, we're going to get everything wrong in the, in the project. And, yeah. um, so, but so far, everyone has been really kind um, and or just I mean, polite, maybe. or just polite. <laughs> <laughs> Another option, um, but we're mostly German, so probably no. Um, um, no, but but you have to simplify at certain points. And uh, for example, in the scenario primer, where we try to talk about the inner workings of models and scenarios, um, we come up with a very very simple economic model to really explain how the the um, how, for example, um, there is always this this analogy. That you think kind of okay, greenhouse gases are directly linked to to uh, uh, to to the GDP, 
Mm. So if the GDP goes up, you know, the emissions go up. This is what right. we always think. And so we tried to break that up and say, okay, that really depends on how you look at it. And even in the model, if you just change the way how energy is created, obviously, then um, you can have a, um, a possible future scenario where the GDP goes up, but emissions go down. And you simply have to shift basically the energy creation from fossil fuels to renewables. Mm -hmm. And this is all kind of this very, very small, very simple mathematical model. And it's really a small um, window into these kind of big calculations, but it's absolutely consistent with what they do. And, okay. uh, yeah. and so it's really totally fine to take kind of small excerpts, small, you know, snapshots from the big models and transfer them into something smaller. So right now, I think uh, everyone is fairly happy with the way we do mm -hmm. that. <laughs> yeah, cool. No, no, because it's a big challenge. You do need to make things a bit simpler to get them to the point and and of course you should always try to clarify and like oversimplify but it, it can be kind of hard if you're not an expert yourself in in the in the domain uh, matter mm. yeah. but i think it's a smart approach to first visualize the model understand it and then tackle the the output part which are the actual scenarios but these are the ones of course that will be most relevant for let's say policymakers or like actually like making decisions based on on the models right yeah And yeah. here I have a question because I think it's it's and it's another really recurring theme for us is how do we visualize uncertainty and all the the mm -hmm. speculative nature of these probabilistic outputs, right? Because mm -hmm. data visualization usually we associate with like showing facts of the past. I mean, mm -hmm. in fact, we do have a lot of visualizations that point to the future, but somehow it's always when you see a chart, you think it's factual information from the past. And so there's there's always this aura of well past measurement objectivity around anything that looks sciency to some degree and these are often the charts that look sciency right so how mm -hmm. do you make how do you bridge that gap or that maybe cognitive dissonance if you make a chart about a future scenario or a visualization ab about a future scenario mm -hmm. um, the <laughs> the the easy bit well actually. Uncertainty is actually the easy bit because mm -hmm. it's just another number in the data set. <laughs> it's already calculated, you know. Yeah. The further, you know, if you go further down the line and if you come closer to the year 2100, it just, mm -hmm. you know, becomes big, bigger. But it also depends on the scenarios. You know, some scenarios are very, have a very small degree of uncertainty and others have, are slightly bigger. But again, for us as visualization experts, it's, it's just another number that we have to take into account yeah. and, you know, have to visualize adequately. So you could draw a I cone think, around the line and say like, this is the area where the value will be, what we're not precise. Yeah, but also I think there are other ways to, 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 to work with that. Um, mm. And we're currently exploring kind of also different ways to to represent that. But again, it's kind of funny because uh, it it seems such a um, such a big challenge. But in the end, it's just an additional layer actually of, of because we do have the numbers. It's not something we have to speculate where the uncertainty is. We know exactly where the uncertainty is. Yeah, but but is there also like this unknown unknowns problem in a sense that even this uncertainty is speculative mm -hmm. in some to some degree because there are certain assumptions that go into the calculation of that uncertainty number again, right? And in the end, it's, yeah. it's just speculating about the future. I mean, some speculations are better than others, but still, it's a speculation. Yeah, and for example, the um, there's one thing where, okay, where, for example, the scientists always get a bit annoyed um, if we use terms like, you know, uh, forecast or prediction, you know, because <laughs> the, the scenarios are 
not. <laughs> there are <laughs> okay. not predictions, you know. What, what are there they? Are, they are scenarios. They, right. they accept that, well, there are scenarios. Uh, also, it's okay to talk about projections. So ah, it's all okay. about, you know, possible futures depending on which, you know, um, which values you adjust. And uh, and it's actually quite fun to look at the scenarios just to, to, to they, they can really answer very, very specific questions, you know, like, you know, uh, if you want to keep the global warming well below two degrees, Paris Agreement, you know, what are our emissions targets? You know, what do we have to achieve until when to really, uh, to really stay below two degrees? Or you can also do what if scenarios like what would happen if we introduce a worldwide carbon tax? You know, and depending how high it is, you know, it will definitely change the way how we uh, produce energy. But mm -hmm. also really fun question or really <laughs> almost weird questions from the, from the finance stakeholders. Obviously, they're looking for investment opportunities in a low carbon world. You know, they want to sure. know yeah, yeah. kind of mm -hmm. where should we invest money? Because we all know that Shell and Exxon and so on, uh, I mean, all these kind of fossil fuel um, uh, producers, well, they're, they're not going to be here forever. So they're really keen on finding investment opportunities. And I think it's a very, very interesting way to, to look at that. And these scenarios give you actually good answers for, for investment opportunities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so again, kind of it's, it's, uh, it's a different way of... of, of looking at the future, um, and also to come back maybe to a question about the visualizing uncertainty and being kind of how do we visualize. Um, it is really interesting that, the, that we're dealing with kind of two different levels of visualization. The one is really more data visualization, where, where we want to show kind of how the numbers will evolve over the next hundred years, but right. also in what kind of worlds are we going to end up? So it's very much also, there's also a slight, you know, science science fiction angle to it, right, right. because yeah. literally science fiction <laughs> angle to it. And, <laughs> and also the, the, the scientists usually try to show stock images, you know, for, you know, for a more techno ecological future or right, more right. fossil yeah. fuel driven future and so on and obviously they're taking the image material you know stock photos from today and mm. this is also part of the project where, where we want to look at into um, because we think it's also really interesting kind of what kind of image material can you use to talk about the futures and how does it also feed back into the visualizations you know what how do they look like uh, and how can you represent a possible future in them mm -hmm. to actually get a feeling how it would be like yeah. To live in that world, because I think that's also hard to see just from a line chart going up or down. Yeah. To actually envision what what that how that would play out in reality, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I'm really really curious, like about the outputs. I know you're just in the middle of developing something, but mm -hmm. I, I hear you will have something available in fall, maybe uh, that people can play with, or that will hopefully. be at least a, a first version online, hopefully. <laughs> And if so, we will link to it like from the show notes. So you might come back to the blog post and just see it there. That would be great. And, um, but I think the approach of first making the model transparent is, is a very interesting and a very good one. And maybe you're right. And then the visualization part sort of solves itself more or less, or it doesn't have to be super fancy because then it more focus is on these conceptual relationships of all these different players and forces and understanding mm -hmm. this part really well. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So I, I also wanted to talk a bit about generally about the, like design and science collaborations. You have a lot of experience there. Um, uh, I also yeah dabble in the world of science communications <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> and so um, I, I think it's a fascinating topic. It's one that we're both always 
keep being drawn back to and but also have our frustrations with our, it's it's a challenging field at least and uh, you also wrote three or two or three medium articles um yeah that's right around mm -hmm. this topic right so mm -hmm. the first one is called bringing design to science mm -hmm. and the second one is called strategies for design science uh collaborations mm -hmm. so yeah i mean just as you mentioned the i think this is for us as designers it, i believe it's a huge opportunity to um, extend the scope of design practice um, into areas that until now have not really a lot of, you know, applications for design. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I remember when I was studying, you know, everyone was talking about, you know, going to, to an advertising company and stuff. I mean, this is really, right, these days right. are long gone, yeah. you know, and design mm. has become so much bigger. And, um, and uh, I think the... the But the, still the today, the default would be to go to a large company and do like something more product oriented, right? This would exactly. be the default mm -hmm. today, yeah. probably. That's the default today. You know, you're very, yeah. it's very business oriented and I think it's totally fine. I'm not trying to replace that. But mm. I think actually that the, 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 the scientific community could actually benefit from a stronger involvement of designers in scientific mm -hmm. projects. And the other way around, I also think that, think that the design discipline could really benefit from, uh, from closer collaborations um, because it would really bring us, um, um, I think kind of we, we would discover new applications for design and for data visualization um, mm -hmm. that would be otherwise really just, you know, would be lost. And uh, so I think it's a huge opportunity for the next next few years. And I think, uh, I mean, in Potsdam, we're really trying to encourage our students to to work more with scientific projects. Um, so I think it's more a general endeavor that we in the design community should really undertake to, 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 to come to a closer relationship with them. Yeah. In, in the Bringing Design to Science article, I think you point out this, this interesting relation that always existed uh, already is that, well, first you have science and engineering developing or providing new technologies, but then it mm -hmm. was only yeah more the engineering and the design side that actually brought these innovations to to a wider public or to the in in, in wider use right so there was always this sort of exchange going on between design and and science in a sense that design just makes scientific progress visible at all because otherwise it would just stay in the ivory tower um And this is basically also since the start of design, like even when it was much more product design oriented, mm. the the basic flow of, of information in many cases, right? Yeah, but also, I mean, the 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 communities work like that. I mean, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. it was really also much more difficult to to. Um, I mean, everything was much more structured. I would say, you know, you had your scientific communities. You would get papers published. You would maybe get in touch. You know, an engineering company would maybe pick up on that, create a product, and at this very end, you would you might involve a designer. And mm -hmm. I think nowadays it's much more fluid, and um, it's much easier to be involved in a scientific project as a designer and. I believe you can have very different roles as a designer in a scientific project. I mm -hmm. always refer to a really great document from the Royal Society from, from 1985 called the, the Public Understanding of Science. And in this document, the authors make very, very clear that the scientists have an obligation to really tell the public 
um, about their work and try to really explain their, their work to the public. Mm -hmm. And you can say really that not much really has happened since then. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's quite a, quite a while ago. Um, but yeah. I think that the general just really it still holds, and and uh, I think it has even become more relevant nowadays. And as I said before, I think the role of designers in a scientific project can be very very different. You can be just communicators. You can do, your role can just be dissemination, and even that would be I think a great mm -hmm. challenge and a really great opportunity to start at the very end of the scientific. This is often how people also see the role of designers in science is like the communicator part or the to a general audience yeah. uh, communication part right? exactly and uh, but i think there are more roles also possible and this is mm -hmm. one of the things that we've also realized in the census project when we really work closely with the with the with the, with the scientists that we sometimes really we've, we've created small tools that allowed the 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 the, the scientists to visualize their data visualize just metadata relations And they could immediately build on that. Mm -hmm. And they, they really loved it. And they, they, they used it for their own scientific work. So it's really about designing scientific tools. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and actually do interventions in their own um, uh, research process. Yeah, absolutely. Ideally, and, yeah. yeah. And the tools, I mean, nowadays everything is software, basically. So right. as, as interface designers, as data visualizers, visualizers, we have a great opportunity there to really build good tools. I mean, there are usually not tools for the public. They're not tools that will be, you know, reproduced a million times or like Microsoft Word. But still to create good tools good interactive tools that show data, visualize this data, that allow them to work with data can really help the scientific process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And what do you think works best? Is it good to actually like work in the same lab like every day? Or is it good to have separate teams and just meet on a regular basis? What's your, or does it depend? I mean, or do you have experiences like that one way would work better than the other? Um, I like the, I think there are different models to do that um and certainly a very successful one is just embedding a designer in a, in a, in a scientific team mm -hmm. um can be sometimes really hard for for the designer but on the other hand nowadays a lot of scientific teams are very multidisciplinary i mean you have sometimes you know computer science different backgrounds in a, in a, anyways in the genetics yeah. mm -hmm. lab you know and mm -hmm. uh, so you, you always have to work in these in these interdisciplinary teams the danger is a bit they might be isolated right so they have no actual exactly. design mm -hmm peers um but they're always the design part of everything <laughs> yeah and and it's more difficult to develop your own agenda right the great thing about for this for the census project again kind of we're a full partner and actually we're one of the largest partner in the in the project so so we can really also develop our own agenda what does us interest as designers in this pro in this process mm -hmm. and uh, so i think embedding is great for the scientists but not necessarily great for the design community so i think also these kind of large-scale projects where you have where you're kind of one of equal partners is also a great way to really bring that forward yeah do you think design should also be more scientific like more <laughs> evidence-based or like <laughs> like rely less on 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 alchemy and and uh, black art <laughs> uh quite the opposite actually this is the um i can see you read my article that's an unpopular <laughs> opinion. the easy answer would have been of course <laughs> no and to be honest i mean i really believe What the, what the scientists expect from the designers is not a scientific approach 
to design. Oh, yeah. This is rubbish. Good point, actually. <laughs> no, 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 they don't. Well, they have that. You know, they yeah, don't need yeah. us for that. So right. what they expect is really the ability to translate um, the scientific thinking, the scientific data, scientific methodology in in interfaces and data visualizations and in artifacts that allow them to communicate or to to have a academic debate. So, so to answer your question, no, design should not be more <laughs> scientific. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, but it, uh, you're absolutely right. And I think you also even have an article on the the value of intuition. And intuition is one of these terms that is so has such a bad rap, but it's such a cool thing. And, and so we'll we'll link to that one too. So we'll have to wrap it up. Unfortunately, I'm really curious to see what's coming out of the project. Thanks so much already for for explaining your approach there. And there's I think lots of really interesting pointers there. And um, yeah, we'll be curious to see what comes out of it. And I hope we can make some progress on that climate change thing. Yeah, <laughs> so, me too. <laughs> that would be good. No, but thanks for having um, me. Um, it was really good. Good talking to you. So uh, yeah. I'm also looking forward on the uh, yeah on the results. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> thanks so much, Boris. Okay, Moritz. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is now completely crowdfunded. So you can support us by going on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash data stories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have a Slack channel uh, where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and there is a button at the bottom of the page. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our own page, datastory.es, and look for the link you find at the bottom in the footer. So one last thing we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for to hear from you. So see you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.